This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books. Thanks to Hodges Figures, the bookstore. On News Talk 106 to 108. and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. Well, it's Bank Holiday Sunday, so we're going to take it nice and easy and really, really slow and embrace what's best about a lazy, relaxed bank holiday weekend. In the mix tonight, well, it's creative. Irish Times columnist Michael Harding tells me how he overcame his long battle with fear and depression by writing his charming and wonderfully honest memoir, Staring at Lakes. We tell ourselves all the time, don't be afraid. We cuddle ourselves as children. We reassure ourselves in middle age. We try everything to eradicate the anxiety. We never even think of what the anxiety is. And really, the anxiety is just the anxiety about being mortal and thinking that in this huge cosmos, in this moment, we may be alone. And that's really, really the most scary thing. And I think that's underneath the way everybody behaves unconsciously. And so when you begin to write, you try and scratch that. You try and open up the sort of wound that's inside you. I take a bus and travel to Clock Jordan in green, leafy northwest Tipperary to Ireland's only eco-village and meet with passionate community resilience campaigner Davy Phillips and review Rachel Bossman's What's Mine is Yours, which charts the rise of collaborative consumption and the sharing economy. It's a remarkable read and I think makes a lot of sense in these cash-poor times. I think after decades of hyper-consumption and individualism that we're actually going to have to depend on those around us and have better relationships with the people in our community. So I think these new systems that allow us to not have to own everything that we've got and be defined by what we have, but actually to be defined by who we are and the relationships that we have. And... We dip into erotica. Yes, you heard me right. Anne Sexton, sex columnist with Hot Press, joins me later to review three of the best erotic fiction classics. And be warned, you may surprise yourself and actually get hooked. But first, playwright, performer and writer Michael Harding needs no introduction. For over 30 years, Michael has charmed audiences, readers and communities with his inspirational words, performances and writing. This year, Michael published his courageous and hugely intimate memoir, Staring at Lakes, a memoir of love, melancholy, and magical thinking. The book reads like the best of conversations with a really close friend. It's close, upfront, and hugely entertaining. Well, Talking Books was delighted to talk with the wonderful and brave Michael Harding and hear his wise, pragmatic and earthy ideas on life, relationships and finding true love. Let's take a listen. Hello, my name is Michael Harding. And I'd like to read a little bit from Staring at Lakes. All of a sudden, I realised why I had come and why I had clung to religion for so long. It was fear, and it is fear. The dread inside that some disaster might befall me or if I did not cling to something. The fear of death that lies at the root of all depression. And now maybe I was waking up. I was no longer a believer in anything. I was a writer I was witnessing something and I would tell the tale. It was a poor village. They had nothing. Their animals were starving. The coming winter would bring famine. Entire families would lie with yaks and horses and die in the snow. 
Perhaps these same boy monks, whose unlimited hope we were sharing, would not last the winter. Already there was little to eat. In the tent after the ceremony we had a thin noodle soup without meat. The seven little monks stood around the door, wolfing down lumps of bread. They were shy of the great llama, and the breeze was blowing in the gale. In the distance I saw a woman walking towards us. Because of the wind and sand she was sometimes invisible, as the wind blew dust and sand in a swirl around her. She wore a long blue skirt and carried a bucket of yogurt with one hand and a cloth of cheese cords over her shoulder with the others. When the boys at the door saw her, they were amazed. A banquet was coming. They were in paradise. Later that day we folded up the tents and the sleeping bags and took a last look at Hovskol Lake in Mongolia. The jeeps were humming, but before I got in I took a moment alone at the water's edge and promised myself I would return some day. How dominant a factor has fear been in your life, Michael, and how critical has it been as a force to drive your writing? I think that it is what drives me is fear. But I think it's what drives everybody. I think it's the human condition to be afraid. You know, we tell ourselves all the time, don't be afraid. We cuddle ourselves as children. We reassure ourselves in middle age. We try everything to eradicate the anxiety. We never even think of what the anxiety is. And really, the anxiety is just the anxiety about being mortal and thinking that in this huge cosmos, in this moment... We may be alone. And that's really, really the most scary thing. And I think that's underneath the way everybody behaves unconsciously. And so when you begin to write, you try and scratch that. You try and open up the sort of wound that's inside you. And you try and share that wound through stories that connect with other people. So in that sense, I was afraid of the dark. I was afraid of teachers. I was afraid of failing in the leave insert. I was afraid that I wouldn't be a success with women. I was afraid of everything. Now I'm afraid of other stuff, that my children mightn't love me or something. So fear really drives us, and what drives me as a writer is scratching it, uncovering it, exposing it, and telling stories about it. And your new memoir, recently published, is an unbelievably courageous and raw read. It's so human is so honest and I'm wondering as a writer how difficult is it to actually put yourself on the page and expose yourself for all your fragilities all your weaknesses all your petty concerns and all your great fears for me it's not difficult okay for other writers maybe they don't do it at all I mean there are loads of writers who hide themselves who never want to really reveal what they really feel they tell you about their characters What I feel is that the art of memoir, you know, from Proust to people like Garcia Marquez, is suitable for the age we live in. Because we seem to be at an end game, you know, from from the kind of world war and Auschwitz and the level of darkness that entered the human species through Hitler and all that stuff, we seem in some sense to be playing out an end game. Now, maybe there'll be a new phase, a new resurrection, a new imagination of human species. But at the moment, it seems to me that it's urgent to tell who you are. You know, why am I afraid to tell you who I am? If if you're sort of kidnapped or if you're locked in a mine and you can't get out, or you're locked in a bus or a lift with somebody and you can't get out, 
you'll soon start telling your whole life to that person. If you're dying, you'll tell your whole life to somebody. Or you'll wish that there was somebody you could tell it to, you know. So this urgency to make a fiction out of one's own story, I think is, is what I see in memoir. Like, I see memoir as a fiction because it's not scientific, it's not accurate. I don't tell you everything. I do select and try and shape to give a flavour to the memoir. But I think the urgency of it is because of the times we live in. And I think also because of the time in my life as a human being. I, I got sick, so I got very broken. I got very vulnerable in a way that I wasn't ever before in my life. And I realised, you know, that's the right space to be in. And that there is easy to be vulnerable. It's actually easy if, you're not, if you get over your fear. It's easy to say how you feel to anybody. And they, they never reject you. In fact, you get nothing but praise because they recognise that you're speaking something for them. So writing your memoir, Michael Harding, was part of a therapeutic process. And would I be right in saying would it be fair to say part of a liberation of sorts? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I have written, you know, three other books and I've written about, I don't know, two dozen plays. But all of them and all my work was always very close to memoir. Right? I wrote about the troubles in the north in a very close-to-the-bone way that I experienced. And I wrote about clerics and the collapse of the Catholic Church, again in a very close way to my own life. And then I got this idea that I'd love to write a big, long chronicle, an endless, huge chronicle, like a kind of an 18th-century thing, about just ordinary life as I was living in the Midlands. And first I thought, do it as a book, and then I decided I could pitch a little bit of it to the Irish Times. So for seven years I've been writing this chronicle, this kind of story every week of what happened, me or people around me, at a personal level. And that led me to the memoir. So each phase of my life has always been trying to be confessional. You know, I can't stand feeling I like you if I don't tell you. And as Heidegger said, I can only be human with you. When there's nobody else but another human being, well, they're the only person you can ever be human with. And the more you engage with them, the more human you become. So I do it because I like to do it. It does set me free, yeah. And in terms of the overall structure of the book, what I liked about it is that you bring in a range of different teams, but within that, you're jumping from different parts of your life. Mm. So it's, it's not your textbook memoir. And as such, there's an element of friendship and companionship mm. with your book. It's easy reading. And for some people, that easy reading is an insult. But I think from the reader's perspective in memoir, this adds, this adds to the overall relationship. I'm just trying to tell a story. And I'm just trying to tell a story in an intimate way in the sense that the reader feels I'm a friend and you can trust me and realise I'm telling you the truth. Not some objective truth or intellectual truth, but the truth as I've lived it. What has happened to me? This is what's happened. And how does writing a memoir change your perspectives on your life? Some of the losses, some of the suffering, some of the great relationships, some of the disappointments. How does that change how you view the past? And how does that affect where you are today? Well, I think the biggest change comes from saying what you, you failed at, you know. There's two things I think important to me in the book. One is being able to say that you're in love. Like, for me, I have a partner, but I've also been in love with other women and other men. And being able to say that is kind of nearly important, because in Ireland we've done an awful lot of talk and writing about, I'm not in love, in fact, I'm really messed up, and you know, I'm a cripple emotionally. And maybe we need to start saying, I love somebody, do you know what I mean? And maybe we need to start living a life 
based on that. So that's one liberation for me, that if you say that, it kind of, I can't explain, but it, it does liberate you. And the other is if you confess your shortcomings. You know, I've confessed small things in the book, like, you know, I could never get on with the way my wife fixed dishes into a dishwasher. The amount of women and men, when I'm reading around the country, who come up and speak passionately and say, we have dishwasher issues, and they've never really said it. You know, there's this thing of not speaking, not speaking out and saying how you feel about things. And even in marriage, I think it's hugely important, or in any relationship. You know, if, if you don't feel entitled to say how you feel, then it's not a good place to be. And if you're able to say anything, whatever negative feeling you have, you're able to sort of put that out and your partner is able to just hold you and listen to you without judging, without approving of your feeling or disapproving of, just hear it, then that's a good space to be in. And we have very intimate details, I have to say now, Michael, in the book. We have details of your bowel movements, your feeling of shame and surrender uh, in sex, and also your your changing identity and your relationship with your father. How raw was that for you to actually write that? Well, you know, I'm a storyteller. Like, from the time I was a child, I'd, I'd keep saying it, what you shouldn't say. You know, I'd always get put down for, you shouldn't say that. Some of it is funny. I tell a story, if I can mention it, like in the hospital where I had this operation on the prostate and they ended up, there was a lot of wires going in and out and they ended up the next morning with an enormous erection, which wasn't very pleasant with wires going in and out of your anatomy. That was funny. I don't feel embarrassed saying that. That's only comedy. That's only the fun of life. That's tripping on a banana skin, you know. There are other things I've said, like, for example, that when I really fell madly in love and I went away and we were kind of having an intense sort of time away in a beautiful place and we would make love and I'd find a a kind of a huge darkness or loneliness or depression you know at the moment of making love or the moment of orgasm and uh, I did feel a bit vulnerable saying that because that's how I felt but again the French called the orgasm the petit mort the little death and uh, again the amount of men who have said to me about that passage isn't it amazing but you, you you described it exactly right that every human male feels this sense of enormous emptiness because the intense run-up to that moment of lovemaking is so physically intense that, of course, you're left with a terrible emptiness after it. And it is, in a sense, a little death. It is a metaphor for how short life is. One of the surprising um, themes in the book, Michael, is about your relationship with your father. And I know your father married your mother when he was in middle age or nearly 50. And you were at somewhat of a distance from him. And I think since reading through the memoir... At the great moments in your life, you've returned to your relationship with your father. So obviously he had a big impact. Yeah. I I wrote somewhere in the book, I loved him from the day he died. And in some sense, he was a good man, but he wasn't a physical touching man or a sensual man. And yet he was beautiful. So I kind of fell in love with him as the idea of him, you know, and I had a whole idea of him that was based on truth. You know, how beautiful he was, how intelligent he was, how sensitive he was, how much he listened, and how poor he was when he was a child and how he was reared by a Polish granny and had a really tough life and everything. But I think I missed the natural hugs or the sense of a father who would be sensually close to you. And maybe what happened was when he died, I began to search in religion for the father because it was only after he died that I actually went to be a cleric. Again, that failed me. You know, or I failed it. I couldn't make it as a priest, so I got out very quick. And then I tried Buddhism, and I'm practising that like 17 years. But again, I'm always in search of the Father. 
you know, I'm always haunted by the ghost of my father. And the ghost manifests itself sometimes as Buddha, sometimes as God, sometimes as Christ, sometimes sometimes as teachers in my life, you know, more senior men who I've found very paternal and kind and wise. Because I loved my father, I'm always searching for him because I never had a physical intimacy with him. And in some sense, as you get older, you become your father, which is an also a strange kind of experience. And chasing faith, faith in relationships, mm. faith in yourself, is a huge theme in the book. Where are you today? Are you reconciled with Ireland and who you are no, today? No. And why do you say that? I'm absolutely at a loss as to who I am, where I'm going. Is there a sense of meaning in this big universe or is it all chaos that we impose a few stories on? I'm in a loving relationship, but I never see anything permanently. I don't know who my father is or rather who he was or who he might be if I ever found him. To walk in life completely vulnerable and to abandon all your ideas today you know all your opinions get rid of them and walk out in the world saying to yourself well I really don't know anything about politics or about who are the bad guys or who are the good guys or what's the meaning of life just stop all that stuff that goes on in your head like a tape recorder and go out saying I just don't know what's going to happen today now that's scary but it's the most beautiful way to walk in the world. So Michael, before I let you go, I might get you to read another passage from Staring at Lakes. This is a moment where I was doing a movie called Run and Jump and I had to lie in a coffin and pretend I was dead for about six hours in the film. So this is how I felt. And I realised that the unbearable grief of that knowing is what I had carried like a lump in my throat and a stone in my heart all my life. Knowing that it ends is an instinct within us all, that life fails, even though we try so hard to succeed. We try to work at jobs or careers or develop hobbies or adventures that will assure us of some sense of success. Most of all, we try to make love succeed. We store up illusions about sex, companionship or children being a ground of being that lasts forever, when in truth the libido fades and even couples grow apart, and children of necessity must turn their back on the old in order to claim the future. The grief of being mortal is the stain in the heart that colours all our unconscious activity, and only when that grief surfaces can we wake to the real beauty of life, which exists in the moment and is therefore transient. So brave, Michael. Well, you only need the light when it's burning low Only miss the sun when it starts to snow Only know you love her when you let her go Only know you've been high when you're feeling low Only hate the road when you're missing home Only know you love her when you let her go And you let her go
Everything you touch surely dies But you only need the light when it's burning low Only miss the sun when it starts to snow Only know you love her when you let her go Only know you've been high when you're feeling low Only hate the road when you're missing home Only know you love her when you let her go Staring at the ceiling in the dark Same old empty feeling in your heart Cause love comes slow and it goes so fast Will you see you when you fall asleep But never to touch and never to keep Cause you loved her too much and you dive too deep Will you only need the light when it's burning low Only miss the sun when it starts to snow Only know you love her when you let her go Only know you've been high when you're feeling low Only hate the road when you're missing home Only know you love her when you let her go And you let her go Talking books. Thanks to Hodges Figures, the bookstore on News Talk 106 to 108. You're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Susan Cahill. If you're short on ideas on what books to buy for the bank holiday weekend or your next flight out of Ireland this summer, why don't you check out the Talking Books webpage on www.newstalk.ie forward slash talking books. We've got lots of interesting suggestions for you, so take a look when you have time to spare. Okay, let's all take a collective deep breath and relax into a bit of erotic fiction. As we all know, the big publishing hit of last summer was not a high-octane crime thriller or an inspirational guide to romance or self-help, but a juicy erotic romance novel called Fifty Shades of Grey, which besides from making some women really, really happy and others blush, made the more prudish of us rewalk our local bookstore and take a second glance at the erotic books section. So for those of you novices out there unfamiliar with the genre, we're going to talk you through some of the best reads in erotica and hopefully debunk some of the crazy myths on this hugely misunderstood literary genre. 
And one thing you may be surprised to hear is that like the best of literary fiction, crime or an uplifting memoir, erotica can be well written and may even tickle your fancy. Okay, we're going to start this off with a piece of iconic erotic fiction by the legendary author Erica Young. And what I'm going to do is read from a passage from Fear of Flying. Is there no way out of the mind? Sylvia Platt asked in one of her desperate last poems. If I was trapped... I was trapped by my own fears. Motivating everything was terror of being alone. It sometimes seems that I would make any compromise, stay with any man, so as not to face being alone. But why? Why is being alone so terrible? Because if no man loves me, I have no identity. But obviously that isn't true. You write, people read your work, and it matters to them. You have friends who love you. Even your parents and sister love you in their own particular way. None of that makes a dent in my loneliness. I have no man. I have no child. But you know that children are not the antidote to loneliness. I know. And you know that children only belong to their parents temporarily. I know. And you know that men and women can never wholly possess each other. I know. And you know you'd hate to have a man who possessed you totally and used up your breathing space. I know. But I yearn from him desperately. But if you had it, you'd feel trapped. I know. You'd want contradictory things. I know. You'd want freedom and also you'd want closeness. I know. Very few people ever find that. I know. Why do you expect to be happy when most people aren't? I don't know. I only know that if I stop hoping for love, stop expecting it, stop searching for it, my life will go flat as a cancerous breast after radical surgery. I feed on this expectation. I nurse on it. It keeps me alive. But what about liberation? What about it? You believe in independence. I do. Well then, I suspect I'd give it all up, sell my soul, my principle, my beliefs, just for a man who really loved me. Hypocrite. You're right. You're no better than Adrian. Does it bother you to find so much hypocrisy in yourself? It does. Then why don't you fight it? I do. I'm fighting it now, but I don't know which side will win. Think of Simone de Beauvoir. I love her endurance, but her books are full of sort, sort, sort. Think of Doris Lessing. Anna Wolfe can't come unless she's in love. What more is there to say? Well, that was a bit of erotica. Not what I'm sure you expected, but it was from Erica Young, Fear of Flying. And Sexton, you're very welcome to Talking Books. Thank you, Susan. Reading Fear of Flying over the weekend, I was really taken back. It's actually extraordinarily well written. And the story is as applicable or as real for people now as it was in 1973. When the book came out, it was an instant success and it sold millions. It's a book that a lot of women have connected with because what Erica Young does, she explores the contradictory desires that we all have for freedom and for closeness, for intimacy and for adventure, and how basically modern relationships cannot satisfy those things and how relationships are about compromise and how they're often not necessarily the thing that makes a woman happy. I was really surprised. This stuff is really well written. Yes, Erica Young is an incredible writer. The book was released and became an instant success in the early 70s and it hasn't been out of print since then. They reissued it in 1993 for the 20th anniversary. Again, a big success. It sold millions. It made Erica Young an instantly world-famous author. And the unique thing about this book is it's written in a very entertaining and conversational style. And Erica 
that ruffled a lot of feathers because her character Isadora craves a bit of freedom and liberation and takes on new sexual partners although she is married and apparently lots of people wrote to Erica Young after she published the book saying they left their husbands because reading this book allowed them to see the problems in their own marriages. Yes that's true the book was not just a big commercial success it was a cultural touchstone and obviously a lot of people do put up with unhappy marriages and it's not clear in the book what Isadora eventually decides to do about her husband but yes a lot of women did leave their husbands and of course more conservative elements of American society then blamed Young for this and had essentially suggested that she was causing the breakdown of marriage and that feminism itself was causing the breakdown of marriage, not that marriage itself might need to be remade. So I think that's quite interesting. And one of the things what I love about this book is that Isabella's sexual desires are very much front and centre and in a way that hadn't really been written for women before, you know, where the sexual desire is independent of the relationship, independent of love, independent of all those nice, cultural, comforting things we tell ourselves about female sexuality, which of course aren't true. And the book just explodes all of those comforting conservative ideas. So of course it was hugely influential and quite shocking as well. And I'm sure lots of men who maybe accidentally picked up fear of flying in their girlfriends or wives' handbags were in for quite a big shock because what we get is a very switched on intelligent woman who has lots of sexual needs and really full on fantasies. Yes, that's very true. And I suppose if you, you know, back in the good old days of the patriarchy if you believed your wife had eyes for nobody but you and that women's sexuality was really dependent on love marriage and relationships then you'd be in for a huge shocking surprise there's a very interesting non-fiction book called what women want that's been released recently which looks at some of the current psychological studies about female sexuality and when the book was released there was a big shock in the tabloids like one tabloid described it as a book that would strike fear into the hearts of heterosexual males and like fear of flying it's a book that shows that women's sexuality is very much like male sexuality craves difference and adventure and excitement and sometimes those are not things you can get in stable loving marriages. Now I really enjoyed the book and I thought it was a really well written read. I was actually quite taken back by some of the passages in it because it wasn't what I was expecting. But one of the big letdowns was this is erotica and I didn't get much or there certainly wasn't a lot of erotica in the actual text. We get very limited sexual action and sexual dialogue. So is it more the suggestion of sex and the suggestion of fantasies that made this book groundbreaking rather than the actual hardcore action? I think it's that and I think it's really the exploration of the female sexual psyche that made the book so groundbreaking. There are a couple of passages, for example, near the beginning, she describes her idea of the perfect stranger on a train scenario and there are a couple of little moments like that throughout the text but it's not erotica in the sense that some of the other books we're going to be talking about later it's not erotica in the sense that it's not about titillation it's more about the exploration of female desire and part of that desire is the fancy of the zipless f-u-c-k yes that term became well known because of the book and that's a sexual experience where the man is not taking the woman is not giving nobody's trying to get one up on the other person no one is trying to hurt a husband or a wife it's just an exchange of pure pleasure between two people and she says that this is something that is rarer than a unicorn and that she has never experienced a zipless F-U-C-K herself and that she spends the whole book looking for that You've brought in two other classics in the erotic literature, John. Both of these are iconic and groundbreaking books. 
The first one is John Cleland's Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure and the second one is The Story of O by Pauline Rake. Yes, they're very, very different books. Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure is popularly known as Fanny Hill and it's the story of Fanny, a 15-year-old girl who loses her parents, goes down to London to work as a maid and through various misfortunes falls into prostitution. However, what is very interesting about this book, it's really a happy hooker tale and Fanny's sexual desires are front and centre. She loves sex. She very much enjoys having different partners. And the book is written as a series of letters where she explains her life choices to an unnamed woman. Fanny does not apologise for her choices, does not feel bad about them, and has had really good experience throughout her entire life of vice and, you know, ends up wealthy and happily married at the end. And what is amazing about this book is it was written in 1748, banned the next year, and was banned really up until the late 20th century. And I think one of the reasons why it was so shocking is this is a story of a woman who enjoys sex. And all the female characters in the book really, really enjoy sex, even though they are working as prostitutes. And that would have been very, very shocking at the time because proper ladies did not enjoy sex. And particularly sort of 100 years on from this smack bang in the Victorian era, being caught masturbating would have had you sent to a lunatic asylum for being morally deranged. So a book like this where a woman is very sexually interested and very much enjoy sex would have been horrific for the readership at the time. And although the book was banned, it was an underground classic. Pirated copies made their way from person to person and it's regarded as the first pornographic novel written in English. And how it's written is absolutely exquisite. The descriptions are beautiful. There is wonderful build-ups to the action, so to speak. And it's all very delicately done. And it's very provocative. And, you know, reading Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure, it certainly does what it says on the cover. Yes, it's a very titillating book, but yet it's beautifully written. And if you enjoy classic English literature, you will enjoy this book. Obviously, for people who don't read classic literature, they might find it a little difficult at first. But, you know, a couple of pages in, you will find it worth your while to struggle through the language. Now, the last one you've picked is Story of O, and it's by a French writer, Pauline Rake, which is a pseudonym. Can you tell me about the book and give listeners a brief narrative to what's it all about? Well, The Story of O was first published in 1954, and it is basically an extended S&M rape fantasy written by a woman called Dominique Ori, who was a very well-respected literary and intellectual figure and, you know, recipient of the Légion d'honneur. And it became an instant success. It's never been out of print. It was the most widely read French novel outside France in the 1960s. And the story basically follows O, whose lover takes her to a mansion in a Parisian suburb where he hands her over to basically a sex cult. And O has to learn to become completely submissive, not say no to any man in the cult who wants her to have sex in any way that is desired. O learns to become an object and a slave. And it's fairly racy stuff now, I have to say. It's certainly very descriptive, let's put it that way. And it doesn't really hold back on what it means to practice submission. Not at all. It's very much an S&M fantasy and actually it's a rape fantasy. And I think part of the reason it became so popular 
though, is that obviously it was published in a time before feminism, a time where wanting to have multiple partners would have branded you a promiscuous whore. And O is somebody who does want a number of partners. And this is one way the text negotiates the cultural climate and also the fact that it is a fairly standard female fantasy. Of course, saying that, that does not mean that any woman would like to experience it in real life, just to make that clear. But it is quite titillating and it is very descriptive and it's beautifully written. And Ori wrote the book actually as a series of essays for her lover, who is a massive fan of the Marquis de Sade. Talking books. Thanks to Hodges Figures, the bookstore. On News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Susan Cahill. Well, if you're interested in blue sky thinking, we'll find this week's book review fascinating. I know I did. The book we've chosen for you this week is Rachel Botsman's What's Mine is Yours, which charts the rise of collaborative consumption. Now, it's an incredible read and bang on the money in these cash-strapped times. And what we're now seeing is an explosion in the sharing economy. So lots of bartering, lending, trading, gifting and swapping. Well, I took a trip to Ireland's own eco-village to Clock Jordan in County Tipperary to meet with community resilience activist Davy Phillips. We got stuck into a really interesting conversation on consumption, ownership and the new sharing economy as seen in Rachel Bossman's What's Mine is Yours. And you know what? Down in Clock Jordan, I'm glad to say they do walk the talk. You're very welcome, Susan, to the Thomas McDonough Library and New Heritage Centre. It just opened a few months ago and it's, as you can see, a lovely setting looking out onto the main street of Clock Jordan. Now, Davy, you've picked out an extraordinary book for us to uh, look at today. It's a book that you said has changed the way you think. Can you tell me a little bit about it? What's Mine is Yours is the book I've chosen and it looks at the rise of collaborative consumption, the new sharing economy which I think is so relevant to today, how we reduce our environmental footprint while at the same time building social capital, building community, strengthening our relationships, building our neighbourliness through the sharing and access of the things that we use rather than private ownership. So collaborative consumption, or the sharing economy as it's sometimes called, is more about how we facilitate the access, the sharing of our stuff rather than accumulating more stuff. How revolutionary read is this book, What's Mine is Yours, The Rise of Collaborative Consumption, Davy? What's so remarkable? What's so interesting? Why should anyone go out and buy it? Well, it's fit in a context. We're in an economic downturn. We're consuming far too much. We're reaching constraints in resource use. And so I think it's so relevant to these times and in the decades to come now that we look a new approach, a new way of interacting, of doing business which is, I think, so fitting for the times. And what Rachel Botsman's really identified, and, and the book sets the context, but then it goes into so many examples, some that we can see here in Clock Jordan, of new enterprises, if we're going to make it relevant, this whole sustainable living, resilient living, healthier communities. We need to be looking at what livelihoods can be created or how we create a livelihood with what we have around us. And what she does is really map out, chart a number of things from the internationally successful, the poster child of the collaborative economy, which would be Airbnb. Airbnb really started out with a couple of IT kids in San Francisco realising that how do we pay the rent and there's this big conference in town and there's no hotel rooms. 
could we just rent out that spare room? So they rented out their spare room. It was so successful that they got an IT whiz kid friend and they started to develop this new platform for renting out spaces that are idling. So now it's an international company. It's bigger than most hotel chains. It's looking at you becoming a host, renting out a space that's just idling. It's doing nothing for you. And also the guests are looking for a more authentic experience, not just going to an anonymous hotel, but maybe going to a neighborhood that's maybe not as in the city center or it's got a bit more interest and having a bit of a a local connection to the place. And Rachel, I think Debbie would be very impressed with what we see today here in Clock Jordan on the Eco Village because everything that she advocates in this book is actually happening and you're really walking the talk here. Yeah, I think there's a few examples that Rachel points in the book that we can see here. Eco Village is in itself an example because it's people coming together to look at how we share space, share land. But also the Clock Jordan Community Farm is one of Ireland's best examples of CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, which she mentions in the book, which really is a number of people coming together. We have 60 families now who pay up front for their food And this means that we have food security, we're providing local food, organic food, but we also provide livelihoods to local producers. So it gives us, in some ways, it's like a food insurance for eating in an uncertain future. And it's also allowing the food producers not have to grow and then have to go to market themselves, that they can focus on the growing and the market's taken care of because it's a direct link to the community. Also, the shared risk if there's weather is bad. We know there's a tight feedback and we know. And it's more a matter of food feet. Our food comes from, you know, a few hundred feet away to where it's distributed from where it's harvested. And one of the things I was quite interested in when you recommended this book was the idea that consuming now, you know, we don't like spending money in the same way. It's now become more about human relationships. It's become more about communities. So we're kind of living with this hangover of waste entering into this new revolution. And in that revolution, it's all about interconnectedness and human relationships. Yeah, I think exactly that. That At the same time of reducing our material throughput, because we're not consuming as much stuff, we're distributing it and having access to the stuff. At the same time with that is that we're building these relationships, uh, social relationships. I mean, Rachel really takes the example of the power drill. You know, every household probably has a power drill, but on average it's probably used four hours a year. Now, what if for the same price you got access to a tool library where maybe someone's employed to maintain the tools and you have access to a much wider range of tools to use in your community? It's like the old library, like we're sitting here in Clock Jordan Library. It's this idea sort of brought into the future and it's powered by the use of social media. And so things like Airbnb, it's the interface of social media that allows that peer-to-peer interaction and for reputation to be visible. It's made safe, if you like, because you can see what other people have said about a host if it's Airbnb or hosts could see what other people have said about guests. And so reputation is going to be so important in the decades to come your online reputation, especially as we now use these tools to share actual physical goods or space or these sort of things. And the interesting thing is it's all about either trading what you have for something that you need. So it's not necessarily about money as such. And if we look back in ancient times, this is how our traditional economies operated. I had one skill, you had another, and we collaborated and we shared. Really, it's it's building on the traditional sharing, bartering, lending, trading, renting, gifting, swapping 
swapping, except now with social media we can do that at a different scale. And I think after decades of hyper-consumption and individualism that we're actually going to have to depend on those around us and have better relationships with the people in our community. So I think these new systems that allow us to not have to own everything that we've got and be defined by what we have, but actually to be defined by who we are and the relationships that we have. Another great example that we have here in Ireland is the car club. She uses this a lot that, you know, people don't want the, the burden of owning the car, parking the car, taxing, maintaining the car. There's a huge expense if you're only using the car 10 hours a week. You know, if you could have access to a whole fleet of cars that you use when you need it and at the end of the month you get a bill, like your telephone bill, and you, so you're just paying as you use. And it's a really unique and open way at looking at the world because it's about access and not about ownership. So it creates so many possibilities. And the one thing I was struck by when I read uh, Rachel Botsman's book is this is politics. This is history. This is sociology. This is psychology. This book is for everybody. It's just sometimes that we feel, oh, this is for young people or this is just for people who are on Facebook and Twitter and so on. But this trend is relevant. This bartering trend, this sharing or collaborative trend is relevant for everyone. I think we are moving into a time, hopefully, where we realise the impact we're having on the planet through the, the level of our consumption and that, you know, we can move towards reducing that through different processes. I love the ideas here and really why I chose this book and not say a book that introduces sustainability because this is now, this is for its time. It has something there for the entrepreneur. It has someone there for the person that wants to have better links to people in their community. It has something there for people that just want to use the stuff and not be drowned and swimming in the stuff, you know. There is another trend that this is sort of going along with this sort of voluntary simplicity that people just actually want to relieve themselves of the burden of this stuff. I mean, we now see along the motorways in the N50 there, huge warehouses storing our stuff. So we're paying extra money, not just for the stuff in our homes, but to store the other stuff that we're not using. Probably never use these things, you know, let's lighten our load. And Davey, when you're not uh, drinking raw milk, what do you eat? That's a good question. I'm reading a lot of non-fiction around these sort of issues, how we strengthen communities, how we build communities, and a lot of Peter Block. He's got a great phrase that the unit of transformation is the small group and how conversations are what will change the way we think and do with each other. I'm reading his book now, Community, The Structure of Belonging. I also read novels. I've just read The Hundred-Year-Old Man Who Climbed Out a Window and Disappeared and really enjoyed that. So it's a sort of mix, I suppose. There's books I read for my interest and work and then there's books I read I suppose to escape that and so in two or three words will Rachel Botsman's book change lives and has it changed yours I think it will I think it will help us move into a different time where we're not hyper consumers we're not defined by what we have that we have different values more intrinsic where it's about who we are and the empathy we have for others and what we do in solidarity with others rather than defined by the car we have and the house we have and the stuff we have so I I do think it's pivotal that we're shifting values and I hope that these new values will change the way we live, work, play together. Well, that's it for Talking Books for tonight. All that's left for me to do is to thank my team, Kate Neonal on research, Paddy Donoghue on sound and Ronan Brunock, who produced tonight's show. We've been Talking Books. Why don't you turn off all the noise, grab a good book, put the feet up, milk it and have a very very good night.
Talking Books. Thanks to Hodges Figures, the bookstore. On News Talk 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.